electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I'm building my friends. I'm trying to make you some money. My job, not just to entertain, put it in context. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. I said it before. I'm going to say it again. You want companies that make things and do stuff at a profit, then return some of those profits to you, the shareholder, with stocks that sell at reasonable valuations. Now, you might think that's a narrow funnel, but on days like today, you can save yourself a lot of heartache. And I mean this kind of heartache. By sticking with what works. Today we saw the hazards of violating these new rules. With the Dow rallying 250 points, filled with this, right? S&P edged down 0.06%, kind of a balance. And the NASDAQ, where a ton of companies that aren't profitable and their stocks are expensive, will get out of give you anything, double 1.22%. First, we have the debacle of the year today, Netflix, which reported a stunningly bad quarter with an outright net loss of 200,000 subscribers when analysts were looking for 2.5 million sub increases. We're going to go over this many times. Take this. Netflix itself made mistakes. They haven't been able to monetize the 100 million users who basically borrow the service from friends or relatives. They've ignored the competition. They're worried about tech, giant production costs, saturation. But at the end of the day, Netflix is a stock that's valued based on its subscriber edition, not its earnings. As long as it kept signing up new people, Wall Street was happy to ignore the actual price journey spoil for the cost of the stock. Once that sign-up engine sputtered, though, then Netflix became just another stock that doesn't fit the market's new mantra. We have no idea what we should pay for a no-growth company that now sells for an unreasonable price. Worse, maybe we have to put it in the bucket of pandemic pull-through plays. Oh, my. Is, is it another Peloton? It, 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 don't tell me it's a DocuSign. Could it be a Zoom? Yeah. That's how a mega-cap stock loses 35% of its value in a day. Well, more on that later. Let's contrast that immediately, though, with a stock that we bought for the Chapel Plus today in response to the action in Netflix, Walt Disney, because Disney has its own streaming service. It was treated as a pathetic fellow traveler in Netflix. So its stock plunged 5.5 percent, by the way, to a 52 week low. 
Now, we know Disney's spending a lot of money on content, but we know that the stock isn't classically expensive because the current round of spending on the streaming service is temporary. Nevertheless, unlike Netflix and its one-hit wonders, Disney has a massive, lucrative theme park complex, along with a stable of iconic franchises that can be extended from here to eternity. Netflix is a building. Disney's a theme park, a theme park of brands with unbelievable IP that can be used for any ride. As for Netflix, let's just say I, I refuse to go on a Squid Game-themed roller coaster. I know ESPN is widely considered to be an endangered species, but the ESPN Plus streaming service, I'm calling that essential, especially if you play fantasy football like I do. In short, Disney should not be tarred with the same broad brush as Netflix. Stock's actually back down to where it was before the launch of Disney Plus, so you're pretty much getting the streaming service for free. It was okay to punish Disney for spending $71 billion to buy Fox in a massive overpay. That's down the rearview mirror. It was not the fault of current management. I know CEO Bob Chapek's been in a tough spot politically, but I'm giving him a chance. I bet he'll create value from here. And at these prices, I'm telling you, I think Disney's going to work. That's exactly why I bought more for the travel trust. And by the way, you know what my plan is here? I'm going to keep buying it on the way down. Sometimes good companies' stocks go down. I'm going to be a buyer. And there's more, like Procter & Gamble. Today, the Consumer Product Titan reported a number that was instantly panned because of the raw cost explosion up more than $2.5 billion a single quarter. Oh, sure, that's worrisome for sure. But because Procter has some of the finest brands in the world, it was able to pass on those price increases at will. Procter is the classic stock for this moment. It makes things at a profit while being one of the great returners of capital with a stock that's got a pretty reasonable valuation considering its status as a dividend aristocrat. The fact that Procter was sold down the first half hour of trading shows you once again that many traders just don't know what works and what doesn't in this new environment. I should tattoo this on their foreheads. They assume that a company with big raw cost increases is a company that will have low margins and less opportunity to return capital while suddenly going from cheap to an expensive valuation. Procter simply doesn't fit that pattern. They can pass it on their cost to the consumer, so there's no problem. Hence why the stock only finished up 2.7%. Same goes for Johnson & Johnson. Yesterday morning, the company reported a mostly inline quarter, except for the previously struggling medtech division, which is great. J&J had been telling us that once COVID was beaten, people would go for elective surgery again and their medical device sales would bounce back. That's exactly what happened. J&J's medtech sales actually ballooned. That was a growth that gave you four times what I was looking for. Yet almost immediately, the stock started plummeting. By the time the CFO talked on Squawk Box, it was down six bucks. However, what is J&J? It's the ultimate blue chip company with the best balance sheet in America that is an amazing dividend buyback. It's a company that's splitting itself into three enterprises to unlock value with the laggard medtech division suddenly soaring. J&J was an incredible buy on that pullback because you now knew that the once broken third leg of the stock was now in great shape. Sure enough, the stock only rallied 12 points from those lows. Boy, you can make a lot of money in a day off stupid people. And of course, like Procter, J&J is the ultimate dividend aristocrat. They're addicted to returning money to their shareholders. I'm going to give you one more because you know the universe is a lot bigger than people think. Morgan Stanley. Now, here's a company that does stuff, taking care of wealthy individuals and businesses, and it's got a stock that sells for 12 times earnings, so it's inexpensive. It's buying back stock. It's paying more than 3% yield. What more could you ask for? Morgan Stanley is the bank that arguably performed the best, as well as maybe Best Bank of America. They were the two standouts. It's got a great CEO, James Gorman, and yet it, 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 the stock's price earnings multiple is shrinking, even as the Fed is raising rates. Something that instantly makes their business more profitable. Morgan Stanley's down nearly 8% for the year. It's almost 20 bucks from its high. Makes no sense. We bought some last week for the Chapel Trust. I'm itching to buy more. Okay, there is one stock, one stock in the entire universe that I, that I follow that doesn't fit the funnel. And that's Tesla. 
It's real expensive. It's not returning cash. But it reported still one more outstanding quarter tonight, and its strength as well as its brilliant and tenacious CEO, Elon Musk, cannot be denied. I say, bravo, Elon. You are the greatest wealth generator in the world. You are, as we say, sui generis. And go get Twitter, will you? The bottom line. As someone who thinks it's a good idea to stay in the market, I'm urging you to consider companies that fit the funnel. This is the bull funnel, okay? While avoiding almost anything else than almost being Tesla, because it'll just make your life miserable. It's not that tough a prescription, but it's the one that works while we work our way through the Fed's aggressive tightening cycle. I want to go to Dan in Connecticut, please. Dan. Hey, Jim. How's it going? I am doing well, Dan. How about you? Oh, living the dream, living the dream. What are your thoughts on uh, Royal Caribbean with COVID fear settling in summer right around the corner? Well, I've got to tell you, I'm still partial to Norwegian Cruise Lines. Uh, Frank Del Rio is doing a great job. And at 22 bucks, I think that represents the bargain in the group. Let's go to Mark in Iowa. Mark. From a founding member household, good health and booyah, Jim. Thank you. Booyah back. When a stock goes price goes down, dividends can follow. Dividends can go down, too. I would like right. your opinion on the dividend safety of a particularly vexa- vexatious club stock. It does not look like it will return to its previous highs anytime soon. Should it still be a hold for a safe 4-plus percent dividend AEO? Okay. American Eagle, we had – look, we had uh, – Look, I, I do not want to say that it was a good pick. It was not, okay? I do think that Matthew Boss came on the other day, and he's the retail guru from J.P. Morgan, and said he thinks it's going to be fine. The balance sheet is good. The stock is too cheap. <coughs> Excuse me. And that's why we bought some today. Now, I, again, I reiterate, we have not done a good job in AEO, but I don't want to give up on it. I think that's fair. How about Harriet in Florida? Harriet. Hey, Jim. Jim, I'd like to know your outlook for Salesforce. Can it regain any of its you know, previous luster, or is the current price where it ought to be? Well, I'll tell you. <coughs> Excuse me. This is a tough one, because we've liked it since it was at $8. We've owned it for the trust forever. We did trim some. It's come back down. It's tempting, but we want to see the quarter. So that, does that sound like a ring endorsement? No, we've owned it for a long time. We're going to continue on. How about that? We like Benioff, we like co-CEO Brett Taylor, and we are just willing to go along for the ride because that's what we've done since eight bucks. That's when we first got involved and liked it. All right, please find companies that fit these characteristics, okay? It's just the, it's the plan that works while we work our way through the Fed's aggressive tightening cycle. Boring, prosaic, works. We made money tonight. We mentioned Netflix at zero chill today. I'm breaking down what today's drastic decline could mean for the future of the streaming service. Then all eyes are on inflation. But where could it be headed? I'm going off the charts to find out. And Halliburton's got dragged down today after earnings. But could this just be due to pin action in the oil service space? Or are there issues with the underlying company? I'll give you my take. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. 
you can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. Can Netflix bounce back from this meltdown, or is it just completely toast? Today, Netflix saw its stock collapse for the second quarter in a row. Last night, they reported a hideous number, and the number of subscribers actually shrank, which sent the stock plummeting an astounding 35% today. Dragged down everything else in the streaming base. I mean, this was the definition of a <gasps> endgame. The implosion of Netflix is absolutely horrifying. But if you took things seriously when the company reported its fourth quarter results in January, I think you actually may have been able to see this coming. Last time, the quarter itself was fine, but management gave you a grim forecast for subscriber growth in the next quarter. And the stock plunged 22% the next day. This time, we learned that the disappointing forecast from January was way too optimistic. Rather than having weaker subscriber growth, they had straight-up subscriber shrinkage for the first time in over a decade. The House of Pain. So tonight, I want to go over what went wrong for Netflix and what it means for the stock's future, along with the rest of the streaming space, because I think they're different animals entirely. Obviously, Netflix is already having a tough time before today. The stock peaked around 700 bucks in November, then started rolling over along with every other richly valued, fast-growing NASDAQ name, as I tell you over and over again. That was the watershed. It didn't help that they fired a warning shot last quarter with that ugly forecast, although some big-name investors stepped in, buying large stakes in Netflix and, and calming the sellers. Probably kicking themselves now. The thing is, we knew that the first quarter would be bad for Netflix. We knew because that's what they told us three months ago. Imagine told us they'd only have 2.5 million net subscriber additions when Wall Street had been looking for 5.81 million additions. As a result, the sales and earnings forecasts were also much lower than the analysts had expected. Netflix had some excuses about COVID overhang and economic headwinds in certain parts of the world. But they made encouraging noises about the rest of the year. In retrospect, it sure looks like they didn't really have a handle on what the problem was or how bad it hurt. And that hurts bad. Fast forward to last night. Netflix actually delivered a big earnings beat, even as its sales came in weaker than expected. But the all-important net subscriber edition number came in negative 200,000. Remember, they previously got it for plus 2.5 billion. 
Some of that's from Russia. They lost 700,000 subs when they suspended service over there. But even if you put that to the side, this is just a gargantuan, terrible disappointment that made a lot of people feel like they'd lost their heads being on this one. So what went wrong? In their letter to shareholders, which was a kind of a, you know, blah, wasn't really worrisome letter. It was just a kind of a prosaic letter, actually. Netflix points out that they had pretty high household uh, penetration, but a ton of people share their accounts, and that's holding them back. They want to crack down on account sharing in order to improve their monetization. They want you to go after your sister, your brother, your aunt, I don't know. I, but, you know, I, I don't think that gets at the crux of what's happening. They disagree with me on that. See, last year, Netflix saw a big slowdown from 2020 when they got a huge boost during the early stages of the pandemic. At the time, management thought that the 2021 slowdown was because COVID pulled forward a ton of new subscribers. Now, though, they've realized this was the beginning of a larger, sad trend. Netflix sees four causes for the slowdown. First, they're partially hostage to the adoption of things like connected TVs, which is something that's beyond their control, the tech problem. Second, there's an oversharing problem. Management believes a household, uh, 100 million households are basically getting nef- uh, free Netflix from sharing. That's your problem. That means service is far more saturated than we thought. Third, the company finally acknowledged that there's fierce competition in the streaming space. Where you been? Fourth, they go on to blame a more sluggish global economy. Do they have a plan? Well, it depends on what you mean by plan. On the conference call, COO Gregory Peters said they're working on ways to crack down on account sharing, but it might be a year before they start rolling it out worldwide. At the same time, CEO Reed Hastings floated the idea of lower-priced advertising-supported membership options. That doesn't make me feel confident about the current business model. I thought Netflix had real pricing power, but apparently not. And even if you like the idea of Netflix with ads, they say that's a year or two away. Like I mentioned this morning, though, I got a better way for them. You know, as soon as they hear it on TV, they go, we can't use that. But just use it for me, guys. Humor me. Let's say you have a proven winner, a squid game, okay, that is routinely giving you the biggest numbers in the world. Netflix could seek sponsors to bracket that programming with one or two ads during the show. They should also run ads when they know they've got massive viewership thanks to can't-miss programming. They could charge fortunes for worldwide sponsorships like the big championship games in sports. It makes so much sense. It's sickening. I mean, if I were there, I'd say, like, oh, God, Jim's so negative, but, you know, he's right. Let's go do this. It's okay. You know what's the worst part of all this? They're guiding for net subscriber losses of $2 million in the current quarter, much weaker than expected. And that flows down to not-so-hot revenue and earnings numbers. CEO Spencer Newman talked about how this is always a seasonally soft quarter for them, and they expect the dynamics from the first quarter to continue. Even after today's decline, I am concerned about the possibility of a turn. Netflix now, Netflix now feels like, it, it, like it's a pitiful helpless giant. Every problem it's facing is something management saw coming. They just didn't used to care. Years ago, Netflix outright said they didn't mind if you shared your account. Even a year ago, they said that they wouldn't turn the screws on members who lent out their passwords. They scoffed at rolling out a cheaper ad-supporting alternative. As for competition, Netflix used to say, bring it on, arguing that the real competition was the time people uh, spend asleep. Uh, look, I sleep three and a half hours. Don't count me. You could say the old Netflix was arrogant or more charitably. They were supremely confident in their slate of content. That's not only the case. I think the competition has done real damage here, mainly because it's now much harder for Netflix to get its hand on the best content. And by the way, the best actors, and they're costing a fortune. These days, every network wants to keep their best program for their own streaming service. Suddenly, you subscribe to a half dozen different services. Netflix doesn't seem like a bargain like it used to be. It feels like a cable bundle. 
Ray already hears that Netflix saw its subscriber numbers drop off just as they finally demonstrated the earnings potential we'd spent years waiting for. The actual earnings per share were much better than expected, courtesy of some excellent operating margins. In fact, at this point, you could argue Netflix has gotten cheap on a price earnings basis. It's just 20 times this year's uh, earnings estimates. But as I said at the top of the show, that doesn't matter. This is a subscriber growth story without subscribers growing. The growth investors who used to love the stock have no interest if the subscriber numbers are shrinking. Plus, I wouldn't put too much uh, confidence in management's earnings guidance, given how badly they just missed with the subscriber forecast. I don't think Netflix has much visibility into how business will unfold going forward, and they sure don't seem to have a plan to right the ship, at least not anytime soon. I say no thank you, but try the surge pricing. The pin action from Netflix crushed everything related to streaming today. And I think that's created some terrific opportunities. For example, as I mentioned before, we bought some Disney today for the Travel Trust. You can follow by joining the CBC Investing Club if you want to know our rationale. I like the rest of the business and think the streaming service is taking share. I'm also intrigued, by the way, about Paramount Global, down nearly 9% today. Stock that sells for just 12 times earnings, and it's well run. But the bottom line, Netflix seems lost at sea without a plan to find the shore. And I think its pullback actually was... Deserved. As for the other streaming plays that were collateral damage, you got my blessing to buy the ones with the cheap stocks and sound fundamentals that make things sell them profit. You know, Paramount or Disney. Stick with Kramer. Coming up, if it feels like your dollar is being stretched too far too fast, you might be a home gamer with an ear to the ground. Kramer tackles inflation next. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Right now, the biggest story in this business right now, at this moment, is the rise of rampant inflation. See, we're caught between the out-of-control price increases for all sorts of goods and, yes, the Federal Reserve's efforts to restore what's known as price stability by raising interest rates, slamming the brakes on the economy. This dynamic has changed the entire character of the stock market, turning money-losing growth-oriented tech stocks into pariahs, as we saw yet again today. Now, if we want a more hospitable market, we desperately need to see inflation peaking, even though no one thinks it is. These higher costs are eating many companies alive. They also make money managers reluctant to pay up for junior growth stocks that trade on the future earnings, the ones that are many years down the line. Listen, think about this. When you got 8% inflation for as far as the eye can see, it means those future earnings will certainly be worth a lot less because a dollar five years from now might buy a lot less than a dollar today. So if you want to get a handle on this market, you need to understand where inflation could be headed. I like to look at all sorts of data points from government surveys, commentary from individual companies, the ones that have the pulse on the input input costs. But I also like to take my cue from history. That's why tonight 
were going off the charts with the help of Larry Williams, the legendary technician and market historian who's been in this business since I was a zit-faced teenager. Larry's written more than a dozen books, and he's created a host of his own proprietary indicators, all of which you can find on his really cool website, IReallyTrade.com. More important, he's got an incredible track record going back for decades, and with his show, and arguably he's been the single most reliable technician for the past two years, ever since he called the COVID bottom in 2020, at a time when most professionals, particularly a lot of hedge fund managers, were still in very much chicken little mode. Now, as Williams sees it, there are two ways of looking at inflation. There's the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, which breaks it down into two measures. Nice to have a Fed Reserve Bank here to understand. The first is called Sticky Consumer Price Index. Okay. It measures the cost of a basket of important items that change price slowly. The second is the Flexible Consumer Price Index. That's a basket of important items that changes really rapidly. I didn't even know this. Thank you, Larry. Take a look at this chart, which shows the 12-month rate of change for both gauging back to 1967. The sticky price CPI is in orange, while the flexible price CPI is in black. Williams points out that, the right, that right now, the flexible CPI is at an all-time high. In fact, he, sees it, 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 he says it's in the zone where inflation typically peaks, which, of course, is what we're hoping for. Now let's zoom in on this chart, which shows the three-month rate of change for the core flexible CPI in black versus the 12-month rate of change in brown. Uh, going back to 2016. Okay, so you're now looking at these are rate of change uh, charts, not the actual okay, the rate of change. According to Williams, the flexible consumer price index has often been a good leading indicator for the sticky consumer price index. In other words, after prices for, for flexible goods start surging, eventually the stickier ones start to catch up. And as, as you can see, based on the three-month rate of change, the quarter-over-quarter change, the flexible price CPI already peaked last year. Okay. It peaked last year. This tells Larry that we might already be turning the quarter inflation. It's just not obvious to anyone on the surface yet. While inflation is red hot right now, Williams points out that over the last 70 odd years, inflation just doesn't tend to stay elevated for very long. Historically, when inflation goes above 2.5%, it only stays there for about 29 months on average before coming back down. Currently, we've already spent 14 months above the 2.5 mark, which means we might already be halfway through. Last but not least, don't forget that Williams loves to look at the action in a given indicator and draw up a cycle forecast based on how it typically moves. So take a look at this chart of the consumer price index going back over 20 years with his cycle forecast in red. According to Williams, the CPI has a dominant five-year cycle. And based on that cycle, it should peak sometime in the middle of this year and continue heading lower through 2025. Who's thinking that, right? Now, if he's right, that inflation could soon peak, which, again, no one's thinking. That'd be very good news for the stock market. Speaking of the broader market, where does Williams see it hunting? Well, we use all sorts of different indices to take the temperature of the market as a whole. You've got the venerable Dow Jones Industrial Average, reflecting 30 of the biggest and best blue-chip stocks. You've got the larger S&P 500. You've got the NASDAQ, if you want to focus on a more volatile cohort. But underneath it all, there's the advanced decline line. The AD line, which is a cumulative indicator that measures the number of stocks that are going up on a daily basis versus the number that are going down. This is an important tool that gives you a sense of the market's breadth. How wide is it? Williams sees it as a terrific way to get a real sense of the stock market's internal strength, and he's very right. But he also likes to use the advanced decline line to make cyclical projections. Again, he loves looking at history to come up with these cyclical forecasts. If you can get a sense of where the advanced decline line might be headed, then you'll know when broad-based rallies or declines are most likely to occur. 
For Williams, this is a more stable way to take the temperature of the market than looking at a particular index, which just tends to be what most people, including myself, do. So take a look at this chart of the advanced decline line going back to May of 2021, okay? With Larry's cyclical forecast in red. As he sees it, the dominant short-term cycle in the advanced decline line has lasted for about 60 days. Although there's also a yearly cycle of about 240 days. The red line here combines both of those cycles to give us a forecast. And based on that forecast, Williams thinks it's about time for the advanced decline line not to go down, but to roar, to roar higher. If that's the case, then you have to expect a major broad-based rally in the stock market, too. He thinks this rally could carry well into May and possibly the end of June. Of course, his forecast also suggests we'll get a pullback going into August with stocks rebounding again as we approach the end of the summer. This methodology can't tell you the size of a potential move, but it's surprisingly reliable when it comes to predicting the market's overall direction. The bottom line, the charts and the history as interpreted by Larry Williams suggest one crazy thing, which is that inflation could soon peak. And then the second crazy thing, which is the stock market's bottoming and due for a nice broad rally given from here to the end of June. Given this track record, though, it wouldn't surprise me if he's right on both. Chad in Wisconsin, Chad. Oh, the big Jimmy chill boy out there. Man, I'm chilling. What's shaking? Hey, we're doing good here. Hey, uh, second time, long timer here. Uh, you know, real quick, I want to get your thoughts uh, on uh, the broader area real quick before the ticker name. Uh, consumer staples area, it seems like the valuation for the stock prices are starting to get a little high, including the funds. Um, and leading into my ticker name here, uh, we got an earnings call next week, Monday, for ticker uh, KO, Coca-Cola. What's your thoughts on the broader I market? Think and I, I very Coca-Cola. rarely say this about a stock. I don't care about the near term of Coca-Cola. As long as James Quincy is there, I have backed him from day one, from day one. And I'm going to continue to back him. I am cool with Coke. And thank you for being second time. Ronald in Louisiana. Ronald. Yes, Jim. Thank you for taking my call. Of course. My question is, PayPal stock's been dropping lately. One of its vice presidents went to work for Walmart. Uh, Walmart stock is going up. Could Walmart be getting in position to buy out PayPal no, and enhance its retail not. credit I just operation? Saw, I just saw, by the way, my uh, writing partner, Matt Horwin, just sent me a hideous, uh, unbelievable PayPal package that uh, Dan Schulman gave himself. $32 million compensation for last year. My trust owns it. We're getting killed in it. Thank God we're, we're long Walmart. But no, absolutely no chance of a buyout. If anything, by the way, I've been telling I've been telling people to read the, the my investing club newsletter that PayPal is just stay away mode. All right. Tonight's charter says that history suggests that inflation could be peaking and we're about to have a big nice rally through the end of June. No one believes either of those, but I like Larry. Much more mad money at. Could today's decline in Halliburton be a good buying opportunity for investors? I'm taking a closer look at the post-earnings action. I'm poking holes in the gloom trade, taking on the loud recessionistas. And, of course, oil calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. What the heck is happening in the oil service space? With the price of crude over 100 bucks a barrel, you think that all the companies that facilitate drilling would see the stocks flying here. 
Yet the reality is a lot more complicated. Yesterday, Kramer fave Halliburton reported what I thought was a pretty darn good quarter. But then, today, Bank of Years posted a hideous number. And the pin action dragged down the entire group, including Halliburton. So how do we explain the disparity? I think it's real simple. Halliburton is simply beating the stuffings out of Baker Hughes. Prince Hal's running circles around the competition, including the Falstaffian ruffian that is Baker Hughes. You can call it poetic justice because years ago, Halliburton tried to acquire Baker Hughes, but the government blocked the deal, pointing to 20 business lines where the two competed with each other. Now, I can't blame the regulators here. Albert and Baker Hughes' merger would have been any competitive by pretty much any standard that matters. But this deal was so important to Hal that they ended up having to pay a whopping $3.5 billion breakup fee when it was called off. Then fast forward to 2017, the dark days of the oil industry. A profligate, undisciplined GE swoops in to buy Baker Hughes, and then GE unravels soon after. Under the older net management, they bled Baker Hughes dry and invested next to nothing in the business. Then less than a year later, they gave up on oils and announced that they were going to spin it off as a separate company again. The whole thing was a farce, unless you were a shareholder, in which case it felt more like a tragedy. While Baker Hughes has struggled to get its bearings during this period, Halliburton has spent years improving itself. I call this a, if you can't join them, beat them trade. Very bluntly, bad news for Baker Hughes is most likely good news for Halliburton. What makes me so confident? Look, let, me, let me tell you, let me tell you, I like Halliburton so much that when it was down today, what did we do? Yeah, yeah, we bought some for the Chapel Trust, which you can follow by joining the CBC Investing Club. We had really good analysis of it at our morning meeting at 1020. We even bought a bit more uh, today, well, yesterday and today, when the stock dipped courtesy of the bad numbers from Baker Hughes. Never mind that Halliburton just reported a very good quarter the other day, like yesterday. See, there's no need to extrapolate from Baker Hughes because we already know how these guys are doing. So tonight I want to drill down into Hal's quarter and explain it to you, not just because this is one of my favorite stocks for the current moment, but also because this company has its finger on the pulse of the oil and gas industry at a time when fossil fuels are ascendant. First, you need to understand that Halliburton is a best-of-breed colossus with operations spanning practically the entire globe. They help oil and gas producers find the stuff, then drill for it, and then extract it. They're partners. Extract it in the most efficient way possible. There are three major companies in this industry. There's Halliburton, Baker Hughes, and Schlumberger. Of the three, Halliburton is the one that's most dominant in North America, where the action is. And it counts for just over 40% of their sales, compared to just 25 for Baker Hughes and only 20 for Slob, slob as we call it. Schlumberger, it's symbols SLB. Hal also has less exposure to Russia, which only accounts for a measly 2% of their sales. Nice. Versus more than double that for Schlumberger. Good position to be in, given the sanctions. How about the quarter? Now, when Halliburton reported they delivered a modest top and bottom line beat, initially the stock got hit. Some of that's because they took a small charge from running down all their assets in Ukraine. Some it's because sellers were nitpicking the lighter than expected margins in Hal's completion of production business. An important line. Most important, I think, they were primed to sell because the stock had already had such a substantial run into the quarter. I mean, the thing was up 82% year-to-date going into uh, the clo- as the close of Monday. So you can understand, obviously, there's guys who want to ring the register. 
But even with all that, Halliburton's stocks bounced right back because CEO Jeff Miller had some incredibly bullish things to say about the state of the industry. He told us, and I quote, we see significant tightness across the entire oil and gas value chain in North America. Support of commodity prices and strengthening customer demand against an almost sold out equipment market are expected to drive expansion and completion and production division margins. End quote. That's what we wanted. The one thing that worried me there is that it, even though the crude prices skyrocketed, domestic oil producers have been, you know, the production, producers, they've been very disciplined about putting new money to work. That's the theme I've said over and over again. They'd rather reward their shareholders with dividends and buybacks and invest heavy in drilling. But the industry can only be so disciplined with oil at over 100 bucks a barrel. That's why Halliburton raised their, their customer spending forecast. They're now predicting over 35% growth this year, up from 25% growth they were calling for three months ago. That is huge and unreflected in the stock. Internationally, Halsey's uh, customer spending growth in the mid-teens this year. They also pointed to a strong pipeline of new projects that are scheduled to start in the second half of the year. I think particularly in the Middle East, where I think that they really kind of under they did UPI, they kind of under promised. Uh, I think they can all deliver because they aging oil wells require a ton of investment to keep production at the same level. In fact, management says their international business is gaining momentum in the current quarter. They expect that to accelerate in the second half thanks to growth in the Middle East and Latin America. Lest you think this is all about the war in Ukraine creating artificial scarcity. And that's certainly a big part of it. Halliburton says the fundamental supply tightness in the industry existed even before the Russian invasion. According to Hal, the oil and gas industry now prioritizes investing in what's known as shorter cycle investments, rather than putting their money in big long-term projects that take years to pay off. When the investment stops, production starts to decline, and this creates a floor under the price of oil. Everybody's embracing these short-cycle projects because they want to be able to quickly turn off the spigot. That is fabulous for Halbert because these short-cycle projects are like bread and butter. America's great success in fracking, and those fracking wells deplete far faster than traditional ones. That's why even if the oil producers want to be as disciplined as possible, they'll run out of crude if they don't hire Prince Hal. They also spent a lot of time on call, one of my favorites, talking about digitization. Halliburton has invested heavily in new technology to make its customers much more efficient. That's expensive. That needed because, man, it's an expensive drill. Well, it includes lower emissions fracking equipment. It's an important differentiator where fossil fuel companies uh, suddenly care about the environment. I also think that's a big edge when Baker use. Most important, even though Hal's had a huge run, the earnings growth is so explosive that the stock still has a surprisingly reasonable valuation. Halliburton's on track to go at a 72% clip this year, 38% clip next year, yet its stock sells for just 15.5 times next year's earnings. That's below the average stock. And as great as these numbers look, I wouldn't be surprised if the estimates are eternally low, way too low. Here's the bottom line. Halliburton got hit today off a bad quarter posted by its arch rival, Baker Hughes. But we just got Prince Hal's results yesterday, and they're fantastic. I think you got to use this rare opportunity to buy a best-to-read stock on weakness which is exactly what we did for the Charitable Trust. Mad Money is back after the break. Coming up next. Let's make money together. What do we got? Kramer's bringing the thunder and answering your burning questions in today's edition of The Lightning Round. It is time. It's time for The Lightning Round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski Let's go with Dave in Illinois. Dave. Dr. Kramer, my good mad friend. We missed Dave. you on Monday. How you been, Dave? Uh, you know, they absolutely took a little extra day there to do some uh, reconnoitering of uh, Mexico. What's happening? Sounds good. This stock is in the healthcare space, Jim. Down on the year, but... Da Vinci and I still like ISRG. 
I agree with you entirely. I think that uh, ISRG is one of those stocks you must not look at it on a day-to-day basis. You look at it on a year-to-year basis. That's how good their machines are. Dave, once again, you always come with great game. I want to go to Bob in Massachusetts. Bob! Hey, Jim. Uh, thanks for all you do. Uh, greetings from Beantown. Oh, thank uh, you. Wondering if, what are your thoughts on uh, Santander with any earnings coming up I think week? that, uh, I have to tell you, I think Anna Boutine is doing a sensational job. It's my favorite bank in Europe. And by the way, I looked at it multiple times to, to own it for the Travel Trust. I just can't get that, you know, summon myself to pull the trigger. I'm afraid I'll move it to $4. I think Banco Santander is excellent. Let's go to Shannon in Florida. Shannon. Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. How are you? Good, good. I'm doing doing good, thank you. Uh, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on Atlantica Sustainable Infrastructure, ticker AY. Uh, that is a foreign company that I need to know more about, and I promise I will do more on it, come back with a more considered response. Let's go to Alan in Florida. Alan. Jim and Chill. Yo, Chill's in the house. I know that nuclear plays a big part of our country's clean energy to generate electricity, and I think we don't have enough supply of it already, and now we got problems with Russia and uranium. Right. Is Uranium Energy Corp, UEC, a good very play? Very speculative stock. Of- it's had a very big run. Be ready to uh, get cut in half or double. And those are typically kinds of stocks that I do not recommend on Mad Money. Let's go to Brian in Kentucky. Brian. Thanks for taking my call. My family has been invested in U.S. Bank for a lot of years. I just inherited a bunch of stocks. Are they still, I'm looking for dividends. It's a Are they very well-run bank, but I prefer the bank of Morgan Stanley. It's an investment bank. It's got a very low price earnings bubble. It buys back stock, and it's got a good yield. That's my favorite. Matthew in Georgia. Matthew. What's going on, Jimmy Chill? It's Yo. Matt. I'm from Warner Robins, Georgia. Us home gamers love all the insights you provide. Don't let your Twitter mentions distract you. From well, those people are pretty horrible. Appreciate you. There's, some of those people are really horrible, and I, I like you Shake know they, off, they can though, wreck yeah. the experience. I admit that. That's what they want, though. So I'm not gonna let them. What's up? Shake, shake them off, man. All right, I'm calling about a company that's built a very impressive ecosystem for their industry, and an important aspect that you've focused on lately is that they're profitable. What do you think about Axon Enterprise? Very well-run company. We've been behind the company what, since about 20. Uh, we think it's just a terrific company. With it. You're absolutely right. It's, it's a platform. Um, it, it's basically, uh, you know, Taser is a service. Let's go to Steve in New Jersey. Steve. Hey, Jim. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing fine. How about you? Doing all right. Um, the stock I'm calling about today is a consumer finance company. It pays a 95 cents a share dividend and is which is 8.24%. What is your opinion of one main holding? Too, uh, too risky at this point in the cycle, uh, particularly if the, if the Fed really does give us a real slowdown. You don't want to be in that one. You want to be in others. Andy in New York. Andy. Hey, Jim. Booyah to you. Booyah. Andy Rutz from Casanova Lake in upstate New York. Beautiful. My question is on Brunswick Corporation. As you, as a Boston Whaler owner, understand the business. Well, people have given up on this one. They figure that in a recession, it's not going to work. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think Dave Folks is going to pull it off and that the stock is a buy at eight times earnings. But I've got to tell you, I'll be really straightforward here. The market doesn't like this stock and doesn't think it'll come back. And I'm trying to disagree with the market because I think it's such a good company. Let's go to Steve in Oregon. Steve. 
Booyah, Jim. Booyah. What do you think about Regent Bank out of Atlanta, Georgia? Very smart bank. Very well run. It's funny, you know, you look at First Horizon. Remember, they just, the stock did nothing and nothing, and then they got a bid. Regent Finance, this is a terrific company. Believe me, it won't stay independent forever if it stays down at this price. It's just t- just way too good. Let's go to Miles in Florida. Miles. Good evening, Jim. Thank you for taking my call. Of course. My my stock for you is AstraZeneca. I've been keeping an eye on it. It's had a good move this past month, but it appears to be uh, gaining some momentum to go higher. So I wanted your opinion on that. I, I can't chase it up here. I think it's gotten more expensive versus some other very, very good uh, drug companies. So I'm going to have to say that you should take a pass on that. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up. He's no Pollyanna punching in the wind. Kramer has a thesis on why it will pay to stay positive in these perilous times. Next. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. I'm just saying that all these, recommend- Don Quixote. all these recommendations I'm make Don the companies, Quixote. they're not interested. But by the way, your point's an interesting one, because I have oh, right down here. What? what did I do Everybody right? is bearish, it seems like. Well, that's my point, Yogi. Thank you. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. I never wanted to be the gloom buster in chief, but somebody's got to do it. At this point in earnings season, I'm on conference call after conference call trying to understand why everybody's so darn negative. And it's now become crystal clear. The vast majority of analysts on these key calls believe that we will be in a recession at this point next year. They listen to the Fed as it gets tougher and tougher. They know a huge number of stocks peaked in November when Jay Powell declared war on inflation, and they've decided it's all over but the crime. I have a different approach. I look at things one business at a time, and from that perspective, the situation seems quite different. For example, the conventional wisdom says small businesses are being crushed. It'll get even worse as the Fed hits the brakes in the economy. I've certainly felt that myself at the restaurants I used to run. But when I talked to Marty Musi, the CEO of Paychex, he told me more small businesses are opening than ever, and they're generally doing very well. I know that flies in the face of conventional wisdom, but Marty's a straight shooter. Then along comes Brian Moynihan, the head of Bank of America, who says the same thing. Small businesses are doing terrifically well capitalized, coming out of the pandemic strong. I, I bet we'll hear again. An even more resoundingly positive story from American Express when they were put on Friday. How do I know this? Because we talked to CEO Steve Squeery not that long ago, and he made a great case for Amex's growth. That's one of the reasons the stock has been running here. Of course, you could argue that's all backward-looking. If we get hit with a Fed-mandated recession, everything's going to fall apart. I come back and say that these companies are prepared for the worst. If there really is a recession, they'll be ready. Just go over what Brian Moynihan has been saying, including on our show. The consumer has an immense amount of dry powder right now. Here's some great stats. A person with $1,400 in their credit balance in 2019 pre-pandemic now is $7,400. The average person with $3,250 in 2019 now is $12,500. Those are staggering increases. They're never talked about. It's why all the planes are jammed. It's why you can't get a reservation at a restaurant, even a hotel. It's why leisure activities are doing so fabulous, including Disney's theme parks, by the way. So here's the thesis. I'm going with this because small business, the engine of our economy is flush. 
And because individual consumers have all that dry powder, even if we get a recession, it's going to be a mild one that will not crush the stocks of our great companies that we talk about all the time. Now, this again brings me back to 1994 when we got bombarded with a series of aggressive rate hikes. So investors fled from stocks in droves. Incredible negative sentiment. Actually, these people all missed one of the greatest bull markets in history. The fact that we were stronger than we realized in 1994, I bet the same could happen this moment. Of course, that's exactly the time when sentiment was as negative as it is now. All right, but before you dismiss me as some sort of Pollyanna cheerleader, keep in mind that I will eagerly warn you when I think we're really headed for a recession. That's exactly what I did in 2007. When I ran it like a crazy man, the Federal Reserve knew, just knew nothing, and we could be headed for the worst slowdown since the Great Depression. At the time, they laughed at me. It's actually in the Fed minutes. I mean, it's unbelievable. I, I keep them here. I can always take a look at them, just remind exactly how much they laughed at me. Back in 2007, consumers were massively overextended. We simply don't have that problem right now. The consumer's balance sheet has never been better. That's why I think we can afford to be bullish in the face of this relentless pessimism. And it's why I'm taking the other side of the gloom trade. I like to say that there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow on the news with Shepard Smith starts now. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.